This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series, A Woman Scorned. Today's case is the story of a young woman who felt spurned by her on-again, off-again lover, and when she realized she couldn't have him for herself, decided to take deadly revenge. This case became one of the most sensationalized trials on record, with millions of people tuning in each day to watch the televised coverage. It was a story of secret lives, tawdry sex, and a brutal murder. This is Chapter 2, Jody Arias. Monday, June 9th, 2008, Mesa, Arizona. Mimi Hall had grown concerned. She was scheduled to leave on a trip to Cancun, Mexico, the next morning with her friend, Travis Alexander. She expected to see him at church the day before to confirm their final plans, but he'd been absent. She'd send him a text, but he hadn't responded, which was unlike him. She had waited, but by Monday night, Mimi was worried enough to drive to his house to see if anything was wrong. Travis lived in a newer five-bedroom home located at 11428 East Queensboro Avenue in Mesa. Travis was the owner, but rented out rooms to other young single guys like himself to help with his mortgage payment. Mimi arrived about 10 p.m. Monday night and rang the doorbell. One of Travis's roommates answered. He said he wasn't sure if he was home. He hadn't seen him, but the roommate arrangement at the house was pretty fluid. Travis rented to guys who, like himself, came and went freely. They had different schedules and didn't check in with each other, so sometimes they might just see each other in passing, or not at all, for several days. This roommate, Zach Billings, also said he'd heard Travis was going on a trip and had just assumed he'd already left when he didn't see him for a few days. In any case, it was a large house, and Travis occupied the master suite, so he had more privacy. Zach offered to knock on his door and see if he was home. A few minutes later, he returned to Mimi, his face stricken. Call 911, he said. I think he's dead. The 911 operator answered a call just before 10.30 p.m. A friend of ours is dead at his home, a woman's voice said, her voice shaky. His roommate went to check on him and said, there's blood everywhere. The first officers arrived on the scene just a few minutes later and found 30-year-old Travis Alexander dead. His lifeless body lay crumpled in the shower. But it was obvious this was no accident. There was indeed blood everywhere. Homicide detective Esteban Flores arrived just before midnight. He entered the master suite and saw a nicely decorated and tidy bedroom. He saw a large sleigh bed along the left wall. The sheets and blankets were stripped from the bed. He walked down the hallway located within the master suite that led from the bedroom to the master bathroom. There were blood smears down the hallway, and Flores observed a bloody palm print on the wall. The palm print would later be carefully preserved by cutting the section of the wall out and sending it to the crime lab for analysis. There was a large dried area of blood on the carpet, just at the entrance to the hallway. The body was found on the floor of the shower stall located in the master bathroom. It was well into the decomposition phase, and although the medical examiner would have to determine how long he'd been dead, Flores surmised that it had probably been several days. The detective would make a thorough investigation of the crime scene later that morning, with the homicide team there to collect and preserve any evidence. What they observed was blood all over the bathroom, including the floor, walls, and sink. The body itself seemed to be washed of blood. Perhaps the person responsible had turned on the shower and it had been washed away. The body was found nude and in an awkward position, face up with the legs bent in a frog-like position. It appeared that he had been stuffed into the shower by someone. His neck and head were bent forward and to the side, and the detective could see a large gaping wound on it. His neck had been cut from ear to ear. There were several areas of blood spatter, including on the bathroom sink and the mirror above it. Some of the blood looked to have been mixed with water, while in other places there were large pools of undiluted blood. It was mostly dry. Lying in the blood on the bathroom floor 
was a spent shell casing that would later be determined had come from a Winchester 25 caliber gun. While most of the blood was found in the bathroom and hallway leading to it, there was also a large blood stain on the carpet at the entrance to the bathroom hallway that led from the master bedroom. After carefully observing the scene, the story of the murder that had taken place became more clear. The first thing that became apparent was that there had been a struggle between Travis Alexander and his killer. He had not gone down easily. There were several areas where the attack had occurred, and Travis had been in several positions as it was carried out. He had been stabbed repeatedly by his killer. Some low spatter on and near the toilet indicated that he had been on the floor or on his knees in the bathroom as part of the attack happened. The amount and spatter pattern of the blood in the sink suggested that he may have been standing, gripping the sink as he bled over it. There were multiple knife wounds to his back and the back of his neck and head. He had defensive knife wounds on the palms of his hands, as if he had grabbed at the knife to try and ward off the blows. There was blood down the hallway where it seemed he had tried to escape, most likely trying to make it out of the room and to safety. He'd only made it as far as the end of the hallway, just to the carpeted side that began the bedroom area. There was a large pool of blood on the carpet. There had already been a massive amount of blood loss from the looks of the bathroom, and he may have fell to his knees or onto the floor altogether. This, the detective believed, was when the knife had been drawn across his throat, causing the large wound and the massive pool of blood on the carpet. It appeared that he had been dragged down the tile floor and back to the bathroom. The shell casing lying in blood would suggest that he had been shot once after he was stabbed. The body was then stuffed into the shower. The rest of the house was searched to find any weapons or other evidence that may help detectives find the person responsible for this brutal murder. Downstairs in the laundry room, sheets that would fit the bed in the master bedroom were found in the dryer. They then inspected the washing machine. Under the lid of the machine, a red stain that was determined to be blood was discovered. They found various articles of Travis's clothing in the washing machine, as well as a Sony digital camera. The camera had been run through the wash cycle along with the clothes. It was bagged as evidence and sent to the lab. The detective began to question Travis Alexander's roommates, as well as his friend Mimi Hall, who'd first alerted the police. Other friends, having heard about Travis's death, had begun to arrive. They were kept out of the now active crime scene, but the detective began questioning them one by one as well. As he did so, one name kept popping up. They all told Detective Flores to find Jody Arias, Travis's ex-girlfriend. She was obsessed with him, they said, and just crazy enough to be suspected of his murder. Jody Ann Arias was born on July 9, 1980, in Salinas, California, to Bill and Sandra Arias. Jody was the oldest of four children, two brothers and one sister. She also had an older half-sister from her father's first marriage. Bill and Sandy owned a restaurant and both worked long hours to run the business. Jody was often left in charge to take care of her younger siblings. By all accounts, Bill and Sandra ran a strict but loving household. Bill was particularly strict with his daughters. He was protective of them and tried to keep them safe. He also expected them to be good and obedient girls. When Jody was 11 years old, the family moved 150 miles south to the coastal town of Santa Maria, California. Bill had purchased a restaurant and thought Santa Maria might be a better area to raise his children. Jody began middle school there and easily found a group of friends that she became close to. However, with all the responsibilities she had at home, she didn't have much time for social activities like school sport events or dances. She met a girl named Patricia and they became best friends. During her middle school years, it was discovered that Jody had a natural talent for art. It was her favorite subject, and her art teacher encouraged her in her creative interests. Jody was a good student and didn't get into trouble. That is, until she was about 14 years old. That year, it was discovered by her parents that she and her friend Patty were growing a marijuana plant on the roof of the area's house. It was just one of those silly things that young teens do, but Bill and Sandra were angry and also alarmed. They felt that this kind of incident could lead their daughter down the wrong path, 
So they decided to try and scare her straight. They called the sheriff's office and turned their daughter in. The officer arrived, and while he just gave the girls a stern lecture, probably believing this was all they needed to learn their lesson, Jody's reaction was one of immediate anger towards her parents. She felt betrayed by them, she told friends, and now she hated them. After that, Jody became paranoid, believing that her parents were constantly snooping on her. She stopped talking to them except to accuse them of spying on her. Her parents would later say that they did not snoop on her after the first incident, but Jody became more secretive and began to lie to her parents about simple things. She would also fly into rages, especially towards her mother, and even was physically violent with her on occasion, kicking her once and pushing her. Around that same time, Bill had decided to move the family for another restaurant opportunity. This time they were moving over 500 miles north to Wairika, California, located near Mount Shasta and the Oregon border. Unfortunately, this only compounded Jody's anger towards her parents. She was devastated to leave her circle of friends, and especially her best friend Patty, and was convinced her parents were moving the family just to punish her. Jody started her freshman year at Wairika High School. Classmates from that time say that Jody was well-liked and popular, but Jody herself would later say she never adjusted to the move. She said that she didn't fit in because the kids at her school were either stoners or snobs, and she was neither. Bill Arias became ill and was told he needed a kidney transplant. This also caused some worry and stress in the family. Sandy had to take over most of the duties at the restaurant. All the children, especially Jody as the eldest, were required to help out at home. Teachers and classmates at Wairika High specifically remember Jody for her talent as an artist and the fact that she was always impeccably put together. Her clothes were carefully chosen, her hair was always perfect, and her makeup was flawless. At home, however, Jody still continued to act out angrily towards her mother. She felt too restricted by her parents' rules and was deep in the throes of teenage rebellion. Bill and Sandra did run a tight ship, it's true. When Jody was 15, they admit that their curfew for the teen was 6 p.m. Jody was an attractive girl and began to enjoy the attention she received from boys. She didn't have much of a social life, so she hadn't yet begun to date until she met a boy named Bobby at the state fair. Bobby was three years older than Jody, and she was drawn to his goth image. He was dressed all in black when she met him and he had dark hair and eyes. They hung out together at the fair, but didn't see each other again until three months later, when they happened to bump into each other. She gave him her number, and they began to communicate frequently. Bobby had already graduated high school and was unemployed. He had dreams of becoming an actor. Jody's first romance became all-encompassing for her. She obsessed over her relationship, which often led to dramatic breakups and then reconciliations. Jody's parents naturally weren't thrilled that their 10th grader was dating an unemployed 18-year-old. They arranged for her to be part of a cultural exchange program in Costa Rica to get her away from Bobby. Jody turned 17 in Costa Rica and became infatuated with the host family's son, Victor, who was also 17. She continued to write to Victor after returning home, and then he came out to visit for a month. Now she fell in love with Victor and had fantasies of moving to Costa Rica to marry him as soon as she was old enough. Victor, however, was the jealous type and saw rivals everywhere. Jody couldn't handle his possessiveness and broke up with him over the phone. She said she already had a controlling father and didn't want a controlling boyfriend as well. In her junior year of high school, although Jody was smart and had always done well in school, her grades began to fall. She considered joining the army, but her parents protested. They felt she should aim higher and get a college degree. She reconnected with her first boyfriend, Bobby, at this time. Her parents disapproved, but Jody didn't care what they thought anymore. She also exhibited some odd behavior, her friends would later say. She became convinced that the apocalypse and the second coming of Jesus Christ was at hand, and she went around talking about it and warning her friends. She had heard this from an older man who was a regular customer at her father's restaurant. Why she latched on to this story and took it so seriously was a mystery. Some believed that this was a way for Jody to add some drama to her life. She seemed to thrive on drama, whether it was accusing her parents of spying 
or falling in love with one boy after another, or waiting for the end of days, Jody always found a way to get attention, usually negative. The summer before her last year of high school was to begin, Jody got into a big fight with her parents and decided to leave home. Without telling them, she packed up her car, snuck out, and moved in with Bobby. She never went back to high school. Bobby didn't have a place of his own. He lived with an older couple in a ramshackle house and rented a room. Jody and Bobby got restaurant jobs, Jody waitressing and Bobby as a busboy to make ends meet. But their relationship was unstable. Jody accused Bobby of communicating with another girl by email. She learned how to access his email account, and then after printing out emails between him and the other girl, confronted him. Even so, Jody didn't leave, but they continued to fight, break up, and make up over and over. Finally, Bobby moved out, packing up and moving 60 miles north to Oregon. Unable to pay the rent on her own, Jody headed to Santa Maria to stay with an old friend and her family. She lived with them for six months and took a job waiting tables, but after her friend left for college, she was just drifting. One day, without warning him ahead of time, she drove 10 hours north to Bobby's in Oregon. She anonymously dropped off a bag of groceries on his doorstep. He called her to say thank you, knowing instantly Jody had been there. He recognized her signature move, but he still thought it was odd. Even as she complained that Bobby didn't care about her, she continued to drive up to Oregon on the weekends to hang out with him, without his invitation or consent. This would also become a pattern of behavior of Jody's. Bobby had a roommate named Matt. When Jody saw how nicely Matt treated his girlfriend, she said she compared it to how Bobby had treated her. She complained to Matt, and in her journal, that Bobby was inattentive, uncaring, and likely cheating on her. Even so, Jody decided to move to Oregon to be near Bobby, who had told her he wasn't interested in being her boyfriend. This would also become an odd pattern of behavior of Jody's, moving closer to someone with whom she already had a problematic relationship, or even after the relationship had ended. Not long after Jody moved to Oregon, she discovered that Matt and his girlfriend had broken up. Matt and Jody then began dating, and she soon moved in with him. Jody continued to call and stop by to see Bobby. Bobby began to tell others that Jody was stalking him and even said he was afraid of her because she seemed obsessed. Matt and Jody continued to live together for a couple of years, and it seems that Matt really did love Jody. Jody described Matt as spiritual, and thus emerged another theme in Jody's life. She was always seeking some sort of connection with the spiritual, but always found it by immersing herself in whatever religious or spiritual practices her current boyfriend embraced. Matt was interested in many different religions, including Eastern practices, and they began to study meditation and travel to attend retreats and seminars. Jody wrote in her journal that she loved Matt, but was still comparing him with Bobby. I can't even imagine trying to pull something like this off with Bobby, she wrote in her journal in 2000. But just three months later, it seemed her obsession with Bobby was back. He was my dream. He was my all, my everything, she wrote. Why do I feel like we still have unfinished business? She began to complain about all of Matt's faults now. He didn't clean up after himself. He never had enough money for the bills, etc. Matt took a job at a resort 150 miles away and while there lived in employee housing. Some say he had already ended things with Jody, but she tells another story. She would say she heard from a friend that Matt was dating a co-worker. After hearing this, she drove the 90 minutes north to confront the other woman. The woman told her it was true. She and Matt were dating. Jody told him it was over, but still sent him messages trying to get him to return to her. But Matt told her it was really over. Again, with nowhere to go, Jody returned to a familiar place. She was back in California's central coast to take a job at the Ventana Inn and Spa in Carmel as a waitress. Her boss was a 42-year-old man named Daryl Brewer. Jody quickly developed a crush on him, but it wasn't until a year later that they began to date. Daryl had resigned from his management position at the resort and now made his feelings for Jody known as well. Daryl was divorced and had a four-year-old son. Jody said that her relationship with Daryl was different from any she'd had before. He was older, more stable, and more mature. 
but Jody exhibited some odd behavior in this relationship as well. She seemed to be copying Daryl's ex-wife, a la single white female. His ex was an attractive blonde. Jody dyed her hair from brunette to blonde. His ex had gotten breast implants. Now Jody did too. That might seem like common things a young girl might do that was just a coincidence until Jody bought the same kind of car that his ex also owned. It was just a little bit too much of a coincidence, some thought. Jody now began to focus on getting married as well as building a financial portfolio. When Jody became interested in a subject, it was all she talked about. Now it was marriage and investments and retirement accounts. Around 2004, at just about the height of the California housing boom, Daryl and Jody, now together for two years, decided to purchase a home together. They bought a house in Palm Desert, California, for $350,000. They purchased it as an investment, planning to live in it for two years and then sell it for a profit. Now Jody was ready to get married and start a family. But it seems she hadn't asked Daryl his thoughts about having more children, and now she found out that he was against the idea. He already had one child, and his job was far too demanding for him to have enough time to raise another, he said. Jody began to become disillusioned with the relationship. They had purchased the house with the risky interest-only loan, believing the value of the house would continue to go up, and they could either flip it for a profit or pull money out of the equity. But when the housing bubble burst soon after they purchased it, they began to have trouble paying the readjusted loan amount. Jody found out about a business called Prepaid Legal Services, or PPL. PPL signed up representatives to sell legal insurance to others and also to recruit others to become sales reps as well. The more you got people to sign on, the bigger your cut grew and the higher you rose in the ranks of the organization. Daryl thought it sounded like a pyramid scheme, but Jody was excited about the income possibilities. She was ready to go all in and started spending all her time at the organization's seminars and trainings. As a result, she cut her hours at the restaurant and without enough to pay her bills, began putting her half of the mortgage on her credit cards. She was betting on the chance that her PPL business would become profitable. To this end, she decided to attend their Las Vegas convention in September of 2006. It was at the convention that fate would bring Jody Arias and Travis Alexander together. Travis Victor Alexander was born July 28, 1977. He, like Jody, was also the firstborn, but his home life was not as functional or as stable. His parents were Pamela and Gary Alexander. Pamela was Gary's third wife. He was 29 and had already fathered two children from a previous marriage, Travis's half-brothers, Gary and Greg. After Travis, they would have two daughters together, Samantha and Tanisha. They grew up in Riverside, California. Both of Travis's parents were hooked on drugs. Their drug of choice was methamphetamine. They were completely consumed by their drug addiction. Gary Alexander was rarely home and would eventually abandon his family. Travis's mother, in her own addiction, was unable to care for even her children's most basic needs. Pam would binge on drugs for days or weeks and leave the kids to fend for themselves without food, clean clothes, or supervision. They would scrounge whatever food they could find, and Travis would recall even having to eat spoiled food or go hungry. Travis, the firstborn, took a lot of the responsibility for his younger sisters. His mother would beat the children, especially if they dared to wake her up from her drug-fueled slumber. The house was filthy and often infested with cockroaches. Even so, it was worse later on when they lost their house and were then forced to move into a small camper shell in their aunt's backyard. They lived in the camper shell for more than a year, during which time they had no bathing or shower facilities. The kids were often dirty and smelled. Travis recalls violence between his mother and father when they were still together. They would often fight, and police were called out more than once. His mother once shot at his father's car, and his father later retaliated by destroying his mother's belongings with an axe. As a result, the children were often frightened and anxious. After Gary and Pam separated, Pam would have other partners, and she would give birth to two more daughters, Hillary and Ellie, and another son, Stephen. 
At school, Travis was teased for being dirty and because he smelled. As a result, he was shy and had few friends. He would write in a memoir he was working on at the time of his death that the words he heard from bullies at school paled in comparison to the hateful and disgusting words he heard from his mother towards her children. He had one fond memory of his childhood, and that was visiting his great-grandfather Vic, whom he was named after. His mother adored her grandfather and would clean up her act to visit him, never wanting him to know about her drug addiction. She and the children would travel about an hour away to visit him a couple of times a year. He was a loving grandfather who doted on Travis and his siblings, taking them out for pizza, on walks, and playing checkers with Travis. Travis says it was Vic who taught him the alphabet. When they would say goodbye to him, his great-grandfather would always send him off by saying, Travis, you need to know that you are special, that there is not anything you can't do. There is something great inside you. You're special, Travis. Don't you ever forget it. Travis always remembered his words, and later in his life, they would inspire him to pursue his goals of wealth and success. Travis was so weary of his life at the young age of 10 that he ran away. He arrived a short distance away to the home of his paternal grandparents, Jim and Norma Sarvey. Once there, he announced, I'm going to live with you now. To his surprise, they agreed. Travis would be close to his grandmother, whom he called Mum-Mum, all of his life. Mum-Mum provided her grandson the love and security he never had. She loved Travis especially as he was a good and responsible boy who only wanted to love and help others. He developed this trait during the time he looked after his younger siblings. He also knew what it was like to need help. He would, for the rest of his life, seek to help others and had a soft spot for those who seemed the most needy. Mum Mum was also active in the Church of Latter-day Saints. She raised all of her grandchildren to observe the tenets of the Mormon faith as well. Now with a stable home and family life, Travis began to come out of his shell. He started making friends in high school and became involved in youth activities in the Mormon church. His confidence grew as he became more social. After graduating high school in 1995, he took part-time jobs to save money to go on a church mission, a rite of passage that is part of a young Mormon spiritual journey. He was to spend two years in the Colorado-Denver South Mission, working with the homeless. While he was in Denver, his father was in a serious motorcycle accident. Travis was informed that his father had died. Gary Alexander was only 49 years old. He had recently gotten clean and sober. Travis's mother had also stopped doing drugs, but the years of excesses had taken a serious toll on her health. This loss motivated Travis to work hard towards his goals even more. Travis finished his mission and returned to the Riverside, where he joined the Riverside Singles Ward of the LDS. The purpose of the Singles Wards was for young single Mormons to meet prospective marriage partners who shared their faith. Travis had been taught by Mum Mum that it was important to find a mate and raise a family under the guidelines of their religion. The Mormon Church also stressed the importance of marriage and family. Travis began dating women from his ward. His first serious relationship was with Deanna Reed, who he met in 1998. They were friends for over a year before they began dating in 2000. Travis was serious about her right away, but Deanna left after a few months of dating Travis to take part in a mission in Costa Rica. She wrote to him infrequently as she was busy with her mission work. In 2001, Travis wrote her a letter telling her he was dating someone else. She had told him not to wait for her to return, but still she was sad at the news. Travis had met 19-year-old Linda Ballard, a student at Brigham Young University. They began dating and very soon were talking about marriage. However, Linda was leaving to return to Utah for her second year of college. Travis wanted to move there, but she told him to wait at least a semester before deciding to come out. While in Riverside, Travis was working at a retail store and sharing a house with other single men. Finances were tight, and Travis had gone through most of his savings. He began to pray and ask God for an answer. He believed that God directed him to get back in touch with an old friend, Chris Hughes. It was through Chris that Travis was introduced to prepaid legal. Travis soon signed on as a salesperson under Chris. Travis was charming, enthusiastic, and hardworking, and soon found himself earning more than he ever had before. 
He began to work his way up the levels as he grew his own sales team. But Linda, already critical of Travis declining to attend college to pursue his career goals, was a little uneasy with PPL's multi-level marketing approach to success. She was uncomfortable when Travis would try to recruit her friends to the business. Travis moved to Provo, Utah to be close to Linda in January 2002. He moved into a home with other single Mormon men. Linda lived close by in a home she shared with other Mormon women. Travis was a normal young man, and he was in love. He was anxious to have a sexual relationship, but sex out of wedlock was considered a sin by the Mormon church. They both wanted to wait until marriage to respect the tenets of their faith. Travis felt with Linda he had found the one. He purchased an engagement ring to present to her and even asked her father for his permission to marry her. But Linda was having doubts. She wasn't sure she was ready to get married and wasn't 100% convinced that Travis was her soulmate. In February, she told Travis that she wasn't ready to marry him and that she thought they should break up and move on. He was heartbroken. He wrote her an email that same night saying that he was sorry that he wasn't worthy of her and vowed to work to be his best self. Linda melted and said they could keep dating. Travis said he still wanted to marry her, but he'd wait for her to make up her mind. Travis redoubled his efforts to win his lady. He took her on nice dates, cooked her dinner, and even baked her cookies. Linda was still torn, but continued to date Travis until May of that year. She finally had to tell him that it was time to move on and broke up with him. Travis was devastated. He packed up and moved back to Riverside. He wrote her a poem, and in it he told her he only wanted what was best for her, even if it meant that they could no longer be together. Travis now, knowing he had to move on with his own life, put all his energy into PPL and becoming a financial success. When he returned to Riverside, he reconnected with his old girlfriend, Deanna Reed. They began to see each other at singles ward functions and then began dating exclusively. They were together for the next three years. Everyone expected them to marry. Travis was still on his quest to be the best Travis he could be, as he once told Linda. He took to using motivational tools to improve himself and had a checklist of daily activities to help him towards his goal. Each day, he vowed to spend time in prayer, reading scripture, reading 10 pages of a good book, listening to 30 minutes of personal development tapes, working out, and building his business. He continued to add other items over time. Through these daily exercises that were taught and encouraged by PPL, he gained more confidence and became a sought-out public speaker at PPL events. After a year of dating, Deanna was 24 and Travis 25. Many Mormons marry young, in their late teens and early 20s, and Deanna felt ready to marry Travis. This time, Travis was the one who put the brakes on taking the plunge. He wasn't ready yet, he said. In 2004, the company Deanna was working for relocated to Phoenix, Arizona. She could either relocate there or she'd be out of a job. She liked the idea of moving and talked to Travis about it. He was also game. He'd been wanting to buy a house, but the home prices in Southern California were out of his reach. He thought he might be able to afford a home in Arizona more easily. He could also work his PPL business from anywhere, so he told her he was in. Travis decided on Mesa, Arizona, a town 20 miles east of Phoenix. Mesa had a large Mormon population. The Mesa, Arizona Temple was one of the largest LDS congregations in the area. Right away, Travis found a five-bedroom Spanish-style house on Queensboro Avenue. He decided to purchase the large house, knowing he could rent out rooms to other single Mormon men to cover the mortgage. Deanna arrived and rented an apartment in Phoenix. To get permission to attend a Mormon temple, worshipers must show a temple recommend. Like an ID card, it allows them to gain entry to the temple. In order to obtain one, the worshiper is first interviewed by a bishop, who asks them if they are holding to the standards of the church and its principles. Recommends must be renewed every two years. Both Travis and Deanna had been interviewed by their bishops and given their temple recommends. Travis and Deanna belonged to different wards since they lived in different geographical areas from one another. Travis's new home soon became a hub of activity with several young single men as tenants. Sometimes there was a quick turnaround as some men left to rent or purchase their own homes or to get married. 
others quickly filled their place. There were also social gatherings, like the regular Wednesday night UFC fight-watching parties. Travis had an open-door policy and rarely kept the house locked. Deanna even had her own key and was invited to stop by any time. Even so, Travis was still waffling about marrying Deanna. Like Linda had with him, he put her off, not sure if he was ready to commit. But Deanna and Travis had begun a sexual relationship in secret. As it was forbidden to do so before marriage, it was kept secret for more than a year. Eventually, feeling guilty, they both went to their bishops and confessed. After the confession, they were required to meet with their bishop weekly to get back on track, the bishop acting as their spiritual advisor. Deanna's temple recommend was not taken from her, but she was not allowed to attend temple until her bishop decided she was temple-worthy once again. She continued to meet with her bishop for 10 months. Travis, however, was stripped of his temple recommend, and his bishop banned him from the temple for a full year. They both vowed to their bishops that they wouldn't have sex again until marriage. Travis and Deanna decided to end their relationship, either to take away the temptation of falling back into a sexual relationship or because Deanna realized Travis wasn't going to make a commitment to her or a combination is not clear. They decided to stay friends, however. Travis was now in his late 20s and told friends that while he did want to settle down and get married, he also had strong sexual desires and wanted to sow some oats before doing so. He was conflicted, as any young man might be at that age. He'd been raised to keep sex only inside a marriage, but the world at large seemed to be having a wonderful time. Men his age were dating and sleeping with young, beautiful women. He was spending time at PPL events, where many of the salespeople were also young, but not Mormon. He had one foot in both worlds, and it was difficult to navigate both successfully. Travis had always been self-conscious about his weight. He was on the beefier side, although not fat. He was interested in dating the beautiful bombshells his friends seemed to attract, but didn't think he had a chance unless he got into shape. He began to work out with a vengeance and eat healthier. He lost weight and gained muscle and was soon in the best shape of his life. His confidence skyrocketed. As a result, he became even more successful in the PPL organization. Always a gifted motivational speaker, Travis now cut an impressive figure as well and became a popular speaker at PPL events. Sharing a combination of his tragic childhood, his dedication to hard work and self-improvement, and his financial success through PPL, he won over audiences who, upon hearing him, were eager to join the organization. In September of 2006, Travis was one of the top salespeople in PPL, earning close to $100,000 a year. He arrived at PPL's Las Vegas convention as an executive director and soon met a new recruit named Jody Arias. Jody had traveled to Las Vegas with her PPL sponsor. She was eager to learn how to build the business and get out of debt. She was still waitressing and finding it harder to make ends meet to cover her portion of the mortgage. Jody was standing with a group of conference attendees outside a hotel restaurant when Travis Alexander approached. Seeing the pretty blonde, he stuck out his hand and introduced himself. He walked with the group and he and Jody struck up a conversation. They parted ways when the conference resumed. Later that night, Travis called a member of PPL who was accompanying Jody. He called to ask Jody to attend the executive director's banquet as his guest that evening at the MGM Grand Hotel. Jody was honored, but at first declined. She hadn't brought a dressy outfit that would be appropriate for the gala. Travis's friend Sky Hughes, who was married to his friend Chris, offered to lend her a dress. He quickly told Jody about the offer, and she met him in the hotel and went into a bathroom to change. The dress wasn't fancy, but it fit her perfectly. Travis thought she looked gorgeous. They arrived at the banquet, Travis wearing a black pinstripe suit and black bow tie. He walked in with Jody and proudly introduced her to his friends. They had never seen Travis with a woman as overtly sexy as Jody, they said. They recalled Jody as polite and charming and said she seemed like a nice person. Travis and Jody spent the rest of the five day conference in each other's company, but Jody told him she wasn't available because she had a boyfriend back home in California. Still, they spent hours talking and found a lot in common. Jody could tell that Travis was interested in her romantically 
but she told him she was a one-man kind of girl. This was technically true. Jody, when involved in a relationship that was not going to her satisfaction, would find another man, breaking up with the first, and then dive immediately into the next relationship. Before leaving the hotel at the end of the conference, Jody gave Travis her phone number. He called her the very next day. Jody and Travis began a ritual of nightly phone calls. Jody complained about her financial problems, her dead-end relationship with Daryl, and her overall dissatisfaction with her life. Travis encouraged her to map out her dreams and then work to reach them. He told her not to settle for mediocrity. He also took some digs at her relationship, saying Daryl was too old for her and it must be like dating her grandfather. Travis also talked about how important marriage and family was to him, and that made Jody sit up and take notice. This is what she had been pushing for with Daryl, but she was sure now that he would never commit to her in that way. She quickly latched onto the idea that Travis might. The first weekend after Jody returned from Las Vegas, Travis invited her to visit him at his friends Sky and Chris Hughes' home in Marietta, California, about an hour and a half away from her. She accepted, and after less than a week of meeting Travis, she told Daryl, her boyfriend of four years, that their relationship was over. Daryl agreed, and the breakup was amicable. They owned the house together, and until that could be resolved, they agreed to continue living together, sleeping in separate bedrooms. Jody arrived at the Hughes' house to spend the weekend with Travis and the Hughes. The first evening there, Jody reports Travis met her in her bedroom. Travis would also describe the encounter to his friends. In his version, they kissed and petted, but it didn't go beyond that. Jody had wanted to, he said, but he'd stopped them and said he didn't want her to regret anything later. In Jody's version, Travis was the aggressor, and she didn't stop him because she didn't want to, quote, hurt his feelings. She described them as engaging in some very intimate sex acts. What actually happened that night is anybody's guess, but Jody would always describe Travis as the person who controlled the relationship. Before Travis drove back to Mesa, he met Jody at a Starbucks near her home. She was still living with Daryl, so she couldn't invite him over. They said their goodbyes, and before he left, he gave her a copy of the Book of Mormon. In Jody's version of events, they then drove to a local park and had sex in the car. Travis's friends later would say upon meeting Jody that they thought she was pretty, but said they were not used to being around women like her who put out such a sexually available vibe. They were a little intimidated by her and thought that Travis might be out of his league, calling him a babe in the woods sexually. Jody reports that Travis was a sexual aggressor, but some see that as hard to believe. If he'd only wanted Jody for sex, why then would he be trying to convert her to his faith? Was Jody making up stories to make Travis look bad, or was Travis so deeply conflicted between being a good Mormon and sowing his sexual oats that he seesawed wildly back and forth? Mormon missionaries began arriving at Jody's house to have discussions to introduce her to the Mormon faith. Travis was already interested in having Jody become a member of the Mormon church, and as in the past, Jody was ready to share in her new boyfriend's faith. Travis and Jody continued to communicate nightly on the phone, sometimes for several hours. A month after he returned to Mesa, he invited Jody to meet up with him. They met at a motel at about the halfway point between their two homes. They spent the weekend in bed together doing everything except having vaginal sex, according to Jody. That was forbidden by Mormon law, she said, Travis told her, but everything else was permissible. Either Jody was extremely gullible, or again was playing the innocent girl duped by Travis. To be clear, the Book of Mormon clearly spells out what and what is not permitted. It reads that one should, quote, not touch the private, sacred parts of another person's body with or without clothing, before marriage. Another strange pattern of Jody's would play out on this weekend as well. She said despite the sex, she didn't feel she and Travis connected to each other that weekend. She felt they had more connection talking over the phone. Jody seemed to need the longing and the drama, or maybe just the distance between her and her men, to continue wanting them. After leaving Bobby, she decided he was the love of her life and kept trying to win him back. After living with Matt for a while, she decided she still loved Bobby. But when Matt moved on, she grew angry and wanted him back. She stayed with Daryl the longest, but seemed bored with him when life became stable and routine. Now, even in a new relationship, 
she didn't feel as excited about Travis when she was actually with him as she was long distance. After they returned to their respective homes, they continued their nightly phone calls and began sexting one another as well. For the more innocent of my listeners, I will explain that that is like phone sex, but by sending texts. A few weeks later, on November 26, Jody was baptized into the Mormon church at the LDS temple in Palm Desert. Travis performed the ceremony. In December, Daryl moved out of the house and back to Monterey, where his ex-wife and son were living. Jody stayed in the house, although she had defaulted on several of the mortgage payments. She was spending more time working her PPL business and less time at her waitressing job, and for the first time since they purchased the home, she was unable to cover her bills. She traveled to Arizona that month to attend a PPL event in Phoenix, but more likely to see Travis again. Travis said he already had a full house staying with him, so he had no room for her, and she'd have to find another place to stay. He told her he'd see her at the event the following day. Later that day, she arrived uninvited to his house. Travis was in the middle of a presentation when Jody interrupted and introduced herself as Travis's girlfriend. Travis tried to cut the awkward moment by jokingly saying, wait, no, we've gone on a couple of dates, but we're not hitched or anything. Jody became known as Queen of the Pop-In, even though she lived far away. She had used this tactic in the past with Bobby as well. It was pretty clear to everyone that Travis was not interested in Jody in more than a casual way. But Jody, even with all the signs pointing to him not being that into her, had convinced herself that Travis was the one. Travis's ex-girlfriend Deanna was also in attendance that weekend, and while they were still just friends, some believed they still had feelings for each other. Travis seemed uncomfortable to have both women in one place. Jody said he would not be openly affectionate with her with others around. Jody stayed the night anyway, sleeping in the living room. Travis's friend Clancy remembers finding Jody asleep under the Christmas tree behind the doggy gate Travis used to keep his pug, Napoleon, away from the tree. This girl was odd, she thought. By all accounts, Travis kept his relationship with Jody casual for several months. He'd even encouraged her to date other people. They didn't even live in the same state, so it's probable Travis believed things would just fizzle out. He certainly didn't seem to be working to keep the relationship going. Jody did date a couple of other men at that time. One of them later told investigators that she talked about Travis so much that he thought it bordered on obsessive. She said that dating him felt like she was cheating on Travis, although he'd been the one to encourage her to see other people. Perhaps Travis at first had been interested in Jody, but when the relationship quickly became sexual, while a willing partner, it made him feel guilty for having sex outside of marriage. Or maybe he decided that Jody wasn't the kind of good Mormon girl he was looking to marry. Jody had continued to keep in touch with Travis's friend, Sky Hughes. Now she called her to complain about how shabbily she was being treated by Travis. Sky began to feel sorry for Jody and sent an email to her friend Travis. She told him he was treating Jody badly and that, as she saw it, his problem was that he wanted to have an emotional relationship with his ex Deanna and a physical relationship with Jody. Sky and Chris Hughes to Travis were an example of the perfect Mormon couple and he held their opinion of him in high regard. Because Skye was defending Jody, it seems Travis thought he should commit to her. Whatever the reason for his change of heart, a month later, in February 2007, Travis and Jody were officially a couple. Jody was invited out to Mesa by Travis the first weekend of February. They had begun speaking on the phone regularly again, after his conversation with Skye. Travis took Jody out to meet his friends on this trip. The fact that Travis was coming around happened at the perfect time for Jody, as her house had gone into foreclosure the same month. Jody always wanted Travis to be her knight in shining armor, and it seemed to her that now it would come true. They began to see each other a couple of times a month. Jody would say that they didn't begin having real sex until May of that year, and in her version of events, she was surprised to wake up with Travis already on top of her. Once again, Jody portrayed herself as the innocent one and Travis as the aggressor. Friends would report that Travis told them that Jody was the one who was more sexually aggressive. Some said they observed Jody pawing at Travis in public in a way that made them and him uncomfortable. 
Either way, Travis and Jody began a relationship that included sex, and some of Travis's friends felt that he had become addicted to the physical aspect of their relationship. Some would even go so far to say that Jody used sex to control Travis, and he, of course, was a willing partner. There were other red flags, his friends said, that Travis seemed blind to or ignored. Jody was very needy. She didn't seem to have a support system like family or close friends. She was struggling financially, and even though she was in her late 20s, she came across as young and vulnerable. Travis, always one to help the underdog, went about trying to rescue her, and his friends saw this as unhealthy. They also wondered if he wasn't being manipulated by Jody. Skye also now had reservations about her. She saw how Jody would go out of her way to try and make Travis jealous. She believed Jody wanted Travis to think other men were pursuing her, so he'd want to marry her quickly before she left him for someone else. She also found it concerning how Jody kept constant tabs on him. Even if he left the room for a few moments, she was asking where he went and tracking him down. Jody and Travis met often at the Hughes's since it was a convenient halfway point between them. Skye observed Jody's jealous and possessive behavior. She'd caught her listening at the door when Travis was on a phone call and even standing outside of the door when Travis was in the bathroom. Jody even admitted to Skye that she'd gotten into Travis's email account and forwarded some emails she found suspicious to her own account to study in detail later. Finally, Skye and Chris were concerned enough about Jody's behavior to take Travis aside. After a few minutes of speaking in their room, Skye suspected that Jody was eavesdropping. She whispered to Travis that she thought his girlfriend was outside the door, and he quickly opened it to find Jody there. The look on her face and the feeling Chris and I got is something I've never had before or since, Skye said. It was like pure evil just the darkest, yuckiest, scariest feeling that I ever had. The next day, Skye and Chris told Travis that Jody was no longer welcome in their home. Travis was upset and didn't understand why. Chris told him, you're not seeing what we see. There's something wrong with her. But the more Jody was around Travis and his friends, the more they, and eventually Travis, saw Jody's jealous and possessive behavior. To be honest, Travis's friends said he was a flirt. Travis was a young single man who'd recently begun to receive attention from women. He enjoyed female attention, as many young men would. But most of it was harmless, just his way of having fun, friends said. Jody, however, would become furious at any woman who he showed any attention to. One of his married friends, Clancy Talbot, was a pretty woman who was also outgoing and friendly. Jody was threatened by her and accused Travis of flirting with her. Finally, at a conference, Jody confronted Clancy. I just want you to know that Travis and I are an item. We're together. I'm mostly upset with him, but I want you to know that we are a couple. Clancy said she was shaking with anger and kept repeating herself. She just looked at her, surprised at the level of her anger, and then walked off. She remembered thinking, you are so crazy, as she left. Jody was feeling more insecure now, perhaps because she was desperate. She had thought that Travis was ready to propose, and she'd be moving to Mesa, but it had not happened yet, and she was close to being homeless once again. After waiting for Travis for several months, she finally had no choice but to return to California and find a job. She called the Ventana Inn to ask for her old job back. Luckily, there was an opening, so she packed up and left Mesa. True to Jody form, she would seek out an old boyfriend to plead for help. Her ex, Matt, was renting a room in a home, and she asked him about a place. There happened to be a room available there, and she took it. Once again apart, Jody and Travis seemed to get along better. They decided to take some trips together and would visit many vacation and sightseeing spots in the next few months. They visited Mormon holy sites in Illinois and Missouri, traveled to Niagara Falls, and closer to home, to the Grand Canyon and Sedona, Arizona. They then traveled to a lodge to meet up with friends in Utah. Clancy Talbot was also there, and Jody was jealous of her, and once again suspicious of Travis. One day, Travis fell asleep, and Jody was able to get to his phone. She wanted to check his text messages. After reading them, she said she concluded that he was texting other women, and the texts weren't innocent, and believed he was being unfaithful. It's impossible to know if this was fact 
or something Jody had convinced herself was true. She didn't confront him at the time, and they continued on with their vacation. On June 29th, after they'd returned home, Travis and Jody broke up on the phone. Perhaps sex and jealousy were not enough to keep them together, at least not in the long run. Jody wanted marriage and family, or at least that's what she thought she wanted. Like she had with both Matt and Daryl, who were both ready and willing to commit to her, she soon found something lacking in the relationship and had her eye out for someone else to come along. With Travis unwilling to commit, he became the golden ring that she could never quite reach, so she continued to try and win him back. Travis was conflicted, if not downright confused, about what he wanted. On the one hand, he had been raised to believe that he should get married and have a family. He was closing in on 30, and in Mormon years, to be unmarried by that time was unheard of. At least that's what Travis believed. He often told friends that he needed to hurry up and find the right girl to marry because he was getting old. It's pretty clear that he was not considering Jody as marriage material, but he was physically attracted to her and probably didn't feel quite as guilty having sex with Jody as he would have with a girl he considered a good girl. In all honesty, they were using each other, Jody for financial security and Travis for sex. After they broke up, Jody did something odd, but for Jody, it was her natural inclination. Once they decided to end things and go their separate ways, Jody moved to Mesa. Most of us would think that to move hundreds of miles to be closer to a person who just broke up with you is just plain dumb. But not Jody. Like she'd done with Bobby, she first accused them of cheating, spied on them, and then when the relationship ended, decided she couldn't live without them and followed them to try and manipulate and win them back with sex. Jody found a room to rent in a house listed on a Mormon website, about 10 minutes away from Travis's house. She took a job waiting tables. She kept contacting Travis and offered to clean his house, an obvious ploy to be near him. Jody would say that he offered her the work because he knew she needed the extra money. In either case, she was still hanging on, if even peripherally, to Travis. With Jody in such close proximity, however, they resumed their sexual relationship. But Travis had already met another girl, Lisa Williams, a member of his church. Travis's friend, Taylor Searle, remembers Travis asking him, What should I do? Should I keep dating Jody, or should I go pursue someone like Lisa? Jody is hot, and she is what I want if I'm pursuing my physical desires, or should I give all that up and have something that has a possible future? In September, Lisa found out about Jody and broke things off with Travis. For the time being, Jody had won. He continued dating Jody, all the while thinking about Lisa, and the next month he called her and asked for another chance. They began dating again, but Travis was now talking about getting engaged, and Lisa decided she just wasn't ready. She broke up with him once more in December, but they began dating again in January. But two things were happening during the time he was seeing Lisa. The first was that Jody kept dropping by his house. If she found the front door locked, she would come in through the doggy door. They would sometimes end up in bed together. Travis wasn't completely innocent in all of this, of course. Even while he was pursuing Lisa and telling Jody he didn't want her coming by, he would answer her phone calls and text, and before long, they were having sexual conversations. Their conversations and texts were becoming more and more sexually graphic. Travis bouncing back and forth between Jody and Lisa made Jody furious. In December, Travis found his tires splashed not once but twice and suspected Jody. She also stole some of his journals from his bedroom. Travis had kept journals for years and was working on a memoir based on his writings. The journals that were missing were the ones written after he'd begun dating Jody. Lisa also received anonymous emails that made it clear the writer had been spying on her. Her Facebook and email accounts had also been hacked. Once again, Travis suspected Jody. In February, Lisa broke up with Travis for the final time. But Travis did not return to Jody. Instead, he began dating a new woman, Mimi Hall. For Travis, Mimi was the whole package. She was in her late 20s, closer to his age than the 19 and 20-year-olds who told him they weren't ready for marriage. She was a member of the LDS church, and she was also a knockout. Besides being beautiful and sexy, Travis told friends, 
She was also self-confident and grounded. He was very interested in her and asked her out. To his delight, she accepted. But after a couple of dates, she told him she liked him, but was not romantically interested in him. They could be friends, she offered. Travis, however, didn't give up. He found reasons to spend time with her, mostly in group settings with other church members. Meanwhile, Jody's friends and family were growing concerned about her. Whenever they spoke with her, it seemed she was spinning out of control. She would call them and talk about her life as if everything was great. Then, a few hours later, she'd call again, crying hysterically about how terrible things were. Jody's friends started calling her mother Sandra to tell her they thought Jody needed help. Her mother didn't know what to do, but finally convinced her to come home. In April of 2008, Jody moved back to California to live with her grandparents. Travis's friends said that he was ecstatic at the news. Travis now believed his problems were over. Jody was gone, and he just qualified for an all-expense-paid trip for two to Cancun, Mexico, with PPL. He asked Mimi to go as his guest, and while she made it clear they were only going as friends, she accepted. Travis was over the moon. They were scheduled to fly out on Tuesday, June 10th. With the temptation of Jody gone, Travis also believed he could recommit to living within the rules of the church. He met with his bishop once again, as he'd done after his relationship with Deanna. He wanted to do things right now, and thought perhaps he could become worthy of Mimi. He began working out again and wrote in a blog post, This will be the best year of my life. This is the year that will eclipse all others. I will earn more, learn more, travel more, serve more, love more, give more, and be more than all the other years of my life combined. But Travis still had not quit Jody completely. They resumed their late-night phone calls again. Perhaps it was a way for Travis to get his sexual fix without crossing over into a physical relationship. Maybe he felt this was more safe. Their conversations grew more sexual and graphic in nature. On May 10, 2008, Jody, without Travis's knowledge, recorded their conversation. Though it may never be known what it was about, Travis and Jody got into a huge argument at the end of May. It was speculated later on that Jody used the audio recording of their graphic sexual conversation on the 10th as blackmail. Was it possible that, in order to try and either persuade or blackmail Travis into taking her to Cancun instead of Mimi, she told him about the recording? Did she threaten to send it to Mimi or his bishop? Whatever happened, Travis was furious. You are relentless in your torture of people that have loved you and protected you and served you, and what do you do? You try to destroy them. You are the lowest of the low, Travis wrote to her. You are sick and evil and knowing you makes me want to kill myself in punishment. I'm so stupid. Jody tried to apologize. I am sorry. If anyone should, it's me. You are light upon this world. I can't even compare. Travis wasn't having it. Hitler had more conscience. You have caused me more pain than the death of my father. You tried to murder me from the inside out. How could you? Why did you manipulate me into loving you? I was a good guy. Why do you hate me? Later, he wrote, Yes, I'm addicted to it. I keep taking you back and you know it. You know I'll get pissed, but I'll take you back. Jody tries again to apologize. I really did love you, she writes. But I let it get so distorted. I am so sorry. I have no excuse, none. Travis ended with, I don't want your apology. I want you to understand what I think of you. I want you to understand how evil I think you are. You are the worst thing that ever happened to me. You are a sociopath. You only cry for yourself. You have never cared about me, and you have betrayed me. You are sick, and you have scammed me. Afterwards, Travis talked to his friend Taylor about the fight and what he said to Jody. That's brutal, Taylor said. Aren't you afraid that she's going to try and hurt you or something? Travis said she'd gotten the message to stay away from him, and it was over. He told his friend he didn't think Jody could actually physically hurt him. And besides, she lived so far away. On Monday, June 2nd, Jody packed a bag and rented a car in Redding, California. She was supposed to meet a man named Ryan Murphy at a PPL seminar in Salt Lake City on Wednesday, June 4th. But first, she drove south to Monterey, California, 
in the total opposite direction and five hours out of the way. There, she borrowed two gas cans from her ex-boyfriend, Daryl Brewer. Instead of driving north to Salt Lake, she continued south. At about 4.30 a.m. on Wednesday, June 4th, she pulled up in front of Travis Alexander's house in Mesa, Arizona. He was not expecting her. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. There's a lot more to the story, and I didn't think I could cover it all in one episode. So we'll pick up where we left off next week for part two. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Don't forget, you can find all the links in the show notes to find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or order merchandise. You will also find a link to our Patreon page. Thanks so much to all our new patrons. You help us keep the lights on and the stories coming. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>